I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Both these lovely people here and all the lovely folks joining us in cyberspace. This is the Transmitting the Light session, May 2020, the third full talk. Now today I'm going to celebrate Kazan Zenji's teaching, and I want to start with two, two poems. The first poem, When mind is empty, pure awareness, no right or wrong, in this, who is there to be deluded or enlightened? Even though it becomes the four great elements in the five skandhas, after all, seeing, hearing, forms, and sounds are nothing other than mind, with a capital M. And the second poem. Seeking it oneself with empty hands, you return with empty hands, in that place where fundamentally nothing is acquired, you really acquire it. So a central aspect of our inheritance through our Soto lineage is the unique practice of Zazen. A very, a very distinct and um, wonderful approach to practice. Now we, we inherit Zazen through the verbal teachings, being pointed out that way. We inherit Zazen through uh, the posture of Zazen, the body's teaching. And Zazen is transmitted to us, inherited in Dokusan, Sanzen, in Sashin. And through doing Zazen, we transmit Zazen to ourselves. We receive the treasure that it is in the doing. And we could say Zazen inherits Zazen. Zazen is a koan that is transmitted to us. It invites clarification of what it is. So to inherit the light of Zazen is not arriving at a conclusion of what it is, but rather clarifying how is this the way of freedom. One of the things that's emphasized continually by the Soto Zen ancestors is that we don't travel from here being confused and deluded beings to there being awakened. But rather, Zazen is the practice of being free now, of freedom actualized now. Dogen Zenji says, if you approach practice as though climbing a set of stairs to awakening, you are as far from true practice 
as heaven is from earth. It's not about going from here to there, from I'm confused and then later I'll be enlightened. And then elsewhere, and in many different ways, Dogen Zenji says, Zazen is not meditation. Zazen is not contemplation. Zazen is not introspection. Well, what is he talking about? Zazen is not mindfulness. It's not insight. It's not a path of, of gradual improvement or refining of the mind. And yet, it can't exclude mindfulness and insight and refinement of the mind, because as we do zazen, we experience these. They arise, they're a part of the, the territory. In Buddhist practice, we have central teaching principles such as practice, suffering, attachment, clinging, mind, freedom from suffering, path. And these, these principles resonate with our experience. In some way we, we resonate with the truth of the teachings and that's what brings us to them. Something rings a bell. They make sense. We put ourselves within the teaching and the practice and it gives perspective on our life. They give us, they give us hope that we can become less confused, that we can be free from suffering, that there is a larger context to our being. So we have suffering, attachments, clinging, and mind, and we have practice to relieve suffering, release attachments, and clarify mind. Suppose we take as a working definition of practice that we are clarifying the mind to see into the nature of suffering. And we could inquire, or perhaps this inquiring will just arise in us, what is practice? What is mind? What is suffering? This activity called practice seems to revolve around mind and suffering. But what is mind? What is seen when we look directly at mind? I invite you to introspect along with me. Look directly at whatever you feel the mind is, wherever you feel it is. Does it have any tangible qualities? How do you know you have a mind? What are those qualities? 
Is it inside your body in a particular place? Is it outside your body? Is it somehow in between the two? Is mind a thought? So the mind is the thought, what's for dessert? The mind exists and then it doesn't? If mind was a thought, what is this thing we call mind that we want to set free? We could take up uh, suffering. That which Buddhism seems to orbit around, suffering. It's assumed that all beings who are not Buddhas are, are suffering. But what, what, what is that? What does that mean? If suffering exists, then what are the qualities of that existence we call suffering? I invite you to inquire, is suffering a feeling in your body? And if so, where in your body? Is suffering present in the whole body? Is it present in your elbow, your hands, your lips? Is it a feeling in the mind? Is it some kind of, of texture? If suffering is a texture, what is that texture? Every presence, every experienceable thing has some quality. Well, what is it? Is it prickly? Is suffering heat? Is it a tension? Is it some solid feeling? But what would make prickliness and heat and a solid feeling suffering? Does suffering move or does it not move? Is it just something that's there with you throughout the day like a ring you never take off? Or do you sometimes have suffering and sometimes not? If you have sometimes have suffering and you sometimes don't, then sometimes you're a Buddha. So maybe suffering is a contraction of the body, the heart, or the mind. Can you attend directly to that contraction of suffering? What's the texture of that contraction? A tense shoulder is not suffering. It's a tense shoulder. A rapid heartbeat. A furrowed brow is not suffering. It's a furrowed brow. It's a rapid heartbeat. What is this suffering? What is it made of? Why do we believe that we are suffering? Or do we actually believe that? The Dharma and the teachings of Buddhism are not like holy relics to not be examined, put behind glass, protected from being, being handled. Everything about the Buddhist teaching, at least from the perspective of Zen, we are invited to look into, to look directly. Whatever is the truth withstands direct examination. If it can't withstand direct examination, so we can apply this kind of inquiry to other similar and central principles. Clinging, for example. 
Someone might tell you the definition of Buddhist practice is to let go of attachments. Let go of clinging. Is, is there a moment that some reflexive doing called clinging is happening? This is the second noble truth of the Buddha, that dukkha, friction, is caused by clinging, by craving. Can you catch this clinging in action? Is it something that appears to your awareness? Now sometimes we may witness ourselves holding to a position. That is, let's say we're in an argument or a conflict about how to do something. And we feel some presence of of bodily tension, some reactive thought, maybe a tightened heart. There's some recognition that we're holding to a position. But as soon as awareness detects holding from the evidence of that tension, the very next moment, open, unhooked. So apparent clinging and its apparent texture, contraction, that we call suffering undone, replaced, unfindable, in a single moment of direct attention. But apparently this simplicity is not not so easy for most of us. So the Buddha teaches the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, relief as a potential for every one of us, and a path of that relief. So our view of what practice is and what the Dharma is, and the way we go about it, are never separate. In fact, one could go as far to say as our view of practice and the fruit of that practice are not separate. So we're given, for instance, within the Eightfold Path, prescriptions for behavior. We're given methods to train the mind. We're encouraged to a gradual release from the three poisons. One could have the view that essentially uh, Dharma practice is a heroic effort. A heroic effort means I'm going to muster my power and overcome this whatever. Me versus delusion. The new enemy. The spiritual quest. Overcoming Mara with uh, determination putting in the hours, cultivating the mind, no pain, no gain, in time arriving at the other shore. Now, it would just simply be uh, absurd arrogance for me to negate this, because think of someone like Hakuin Zenji or Shoto Harada Roshi, whose lives embody diligent practice and the freedom of that practice. And yet, does Zazen rest on this this kind of outlook 
me versus delusion. From confusion to wisdom. If it doesn't rest on this kind of outlook, then is it the Buddha's teaching? Is it in accord with the teachings of the Dharma? So I'm going to share in a little bit, share and comment on a treatise by Keizan Zenji. And I want to share a little bit about who this, who this being might have been, what we know historically. So Keizan Zenji is a 13th century Soto Zen ancestor and considered the second founder of Soto Zen in Japan. And there's a saying that Dogen Zenji is, is the father and Keizan Zenji is the mother. And partially that's referring to the different flavors of practice. So Keizan Zenji is attributed with having a, a grandmotherly heart and his practice and approach being a little bit more gentle. And Dogen Zenji, a reputation for being very stern, a stern father. So Keizan Zenji, known for having a grandmotherly uh, style, he was raised by his grandmother until the age of eight, who was a devout Buddhist and supporter of Dogen Zenji. Apparently she had a deep practice with uh, Kanon Bodhisattva, Bodhisattva of Compassion. And Keizan Zenji's mother was a nun probably long after his birth. And she encouraged his practice from very early on. Now, Keizan Zenji entered monastic life at age eight. And you could just think similar to like Maizumi Roshi of what that would be like from such an early age to be immersed in the environment, the ambiance of the Dharma. I mean, I'm working with being raised by MTV. That's some karma there. <laughs> but think about, think about how impressionable a child's mind is and the kind of influence that can happen. You think about great musicians who are born into musical families and how young their, their training begins. So he had this, this beautiful karma he entered monastic life at age eight. I don't know what that looked like for an eight-year-old at Aheji Monastery, Dogen Zenji's monastery. So this is, what is it, five generations after Dogen Zenji? It's said that when Keizan Zenji became a teacher, he was very supportive of women's practice. And in a way, we shouldn't make a big deal about someone not being misogynist, misogynistic. But this was medieval Japan. And so this is significant. In a very highly rigidly patriarchal culture, it, it really says something about the nature of this person's heart. It's said that his grandmother's and mother's practice really touched him 
and any prejudice he had about a woman's capacity to practice the Dharma was just, just wouldn't land because of what he knew directly. He was the first, and I don't know how many after this, frankly, he was the first male Soto Zen master to give transmission to one of his female disciples. Apparently he supported his mother and his cousin in founding and leading convents. One of the things he's most celebrated for is that he opened up Soto Zen to the people. So Dogen Zenji's monastic practice was, and it seems like still is, very rigorous, very austere kind of practice. And Keizan Zenji, for whatever reasons, for whatever his vision was, founded many temples and opened it up to lay people. Brought in uh, rituals, integrated rituals from other sects of Japanese Buddhism, including Jukai, to welcome in broader swath of the population. And so Soto Zen was widely spread by him founding many temples and lay people being moved to support and thus helping Soto Zen flourish. Keizan Zenji, as far as I know, is one of only a few Japanese Zen masters who recorded their dreams and passed them down. He has a quality of being a real visionary when you read his writings. He would make some significant decisions about dreams, from dreams, excuse me, and even take the decision into the dream space in order to get clarity. You get a sense of somebody with a mystical outlook on life and for whom what we call the unseen world is not so unseen. There seemed to be a certain sensitivity to energies. And at the same time, he was quite practical. So his two monasteries he founded, Sojiji and Yokoji, are still functioning. And Sojiji is the second largest of the two main Soto Zen training monasteries. So Eheji, Eheji and Sojiji. There's an interesting connection between Sojiji and our lineage. Um, Bayan Hakujun Roshi and Maizumi Roshi did their monastic training at Sojiji. So they would have received the light of Keizan's style. And then Maizumi Roshi, a number of years later, came to America with a real generosity and openness to sharing the Dharma with lay people and to empowering women teachers, which even in the 70s, sexist America, that's significant. So we get a sense of how the lineage and, and the mind is, is passed down through the generations. One of Keizan Zenji's most widely studied writings is the Zazen Yojinki, 
It's considered comparable to Dogen Zenji's Fukan Zazengi, the instructions of doing Zazen. And training monks study these texts. So at Sojiji, they would study Keizan Zenji's instructions on Zazen. Zazen Yojinki, the title is translated as What to be aware of in Zazen. And so I like to, I like to share these texts and then uh, make, make some comments or perhaps even us, invite us into something of the experience. So this is from section six of the Zazen Yojinki. Keizan Zenji says, Zazen is not based upon teaching, practice, or realization. Instead, these three aspects are all contained within Zazen. Measuring realization is based upon some notion of enlightenment. This is not the essence of Zazen. Practice is based upon strenuous application. This is not the essence of Zazen. Teaching is based upon freeing from evil and cultivating good. This is not the essence of Zazen. So the teaching is found in our very own body-mind. In our very own body-mind is where the Dharma teachings come from and where they are realized. One of the Indian ancestors was asked, do you study the scriptures or not? This is a kind of a common theme that runs through dialogues with Zen masters because the Zen teacher is um, said to have not rely on the conceptual teaching. but also not rejecting the teachings of the Buddha. So he's asked, do you study the scriptures or not? And this teacher said, inhalation, exhalation, 1,000, 10,000 scriptures. This breath, just attend to this breath. complete expression of life. It's not a deep breath, it's not a shallow breath, this breath. Kizan Zenji spends some time telling us what Zazen is, is not. Zazen is not about becoming an enlightened person. is not about working hard towards some goal in our mind. It's not about being one of the good ones, one of the pure ones. And interesting, just that, that view of practice begins to cut into some core ego strategies. 
a heroic ego that wants to be special and rise above the crowd. The idea that I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, overcome all odds, that I'm going to find meaning in simply being busy, being worthy, being superior. Inhale, exhale. Feel this breath carefully. Inhale, exhale. Not to do something to your mind, not to progress in practice. Simply inhale, exhale. He continues, teaching is found in Zen, but it is not the usual teaching. Rather, it is a direct pointing, just expressing the way, speaking with the whole body. Such words are without sentences or clauses. Where views end and concept is exhausted, the one word pervades the ten directions without setting up so much as a single hair. This is the true teaching of the Buddhas and awakened ancestors. Although we speak of practice, it is not a practice that you can do. That is to say, the body does nothing. The mouth does not recite. The mind doesn't think things over. The six senses are left to their own clarity and unaffected. So this is not the path of insight into the Four Noble Truths. Nor is the practice of understanding interdependent arising. Nor is it the six perfections with numberless activities of the bodhisattvas. This practice is without struggle at all. So it is called awakening or enlightenment. Just rest in the self-enjoyment samadhi of all the Buddhas, wandering playfully in the four practices. Four practices are sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. Wandering playfully in the four practices of peace and bliss of those open to openness. This is a profound and inconceivable practice of Buddhas and awakened ancestors. Who would I be if I wasn't trying to attain something? If I wasn't busy trying to make something happen? If I didn't define myself in opposition? So let's Experiment with, with letting go of, of struggle. So I want to invite you into uh, practice. Practice along with me, if you like. So first of all, letting the body breathe and the senses sense. Releasing any quality of volition in these functions. Breath requires no doing. The senses require no doing. So noticing, appreciating the natural functioning, body breathing, ears hearing, skin feeling, colors shining.
letting thoughts form and burst like bubbles in a stream. No need to circumscribe the mind with some kind of anxiety, as if it's a problem to be taken care of. Let thoughts arise and burst like bubbles on a stream. In a way, they're all just bubbles made of the same flow. Witnessing that thinking thinks. Can you find any evidence of me, the thinker? Thinking thinks. Breathing breathes. Senses sense. Feel, notice any quality of wanting to control. And that too, let it be there and let it subside. Feel the impulse towards doing or altering experience in any way. And letting that too be a bubble that rises and subsides. Kazan Roshi says, although we speak of realization, this realization does not hold to itself as being realization. This is practice of the supreme absorption, which is the knowing of unborn, unobstructed, and spontaneously arising awareness. Now, as soon as we receive these words, which are beautiful and lucid, we most of us tend to think there's going to be some grand shimmering descent of light that's going to come. And because that hasn't happened yet, I don't know what this guy's talking about. And so I suddenly turn away from my experience. I turn away or I'm in a posture of waiting for this unobstructed, spontaneously arising luminosity to knock me off my cushion. unborn, unobstructed, and spontaneously arising awareness. It is the door of luminosity that opens out onto the realization of those who come thus, born through the practice of the great ease. This goes beyond the patterns of sacred and mundane, goes beyond confusion or wisdom. This is the realization of unsurpassed enlightenment as our own nature. I want to invite you into more uh, direct, direct exploration. And noticing the effortless happening of body-mind. And 
and sense experience appearing and disappearing. Sounds constantly changing. Even visual forms themselves gently quivering, flowing. Inviting in a softness of perception, letting the senses be, um, be themselves, be gentle. And noticing without any, any strain, directly knowing, experiencing whatever is happening. Heartbeat, experiencing heartbeat. Sounds, experiencing sounds. Thoughts, experiencing thoughts. Relaxing into this, this letting be, aware of this effortless experiencing. Without trying this intimate knowing of life. And notice all this effortless experiencing happening in spaciousness. Feel all this effortless happening within spaciousness. The fact that anything can happen at all. Spaciousness. Openness. The field for thoughts to think themselves and disappear, for the breath to breathe, spaciousness. Knowing this openness, this emptiness, this effortless experiencing, like waves on an ocean. like ripples in that space, taking form and then increasing. Keizan Zenji continues, Zazen is not also not based upon discipline, practice, or wisdom. These three are all contained within it. So probably discipline here is a word for uh, precepts. Zazen is not based upon precepts, practice, or wisdom. Discipline is usually understood as ceasing wrong action and eliminating evil. In Zazen, the whole thing is known to be non-dual. Cast off the numberless concerns and rest free from entangling yourself in the Buddhist way or the worldly way. Leave behind feelings about the path as well as normal feelings. When you leave behind all opposites, what can obstruct you? 
This is the formless discipline of the ground of mind. One of the images in the Dzogchen tradition of this style of meditation is like a child entering a temple. Like a child entering a temple. Quality of innocence or freshness. But also a, a simple wonder. Not the jaded schmear of been there, done that. Sense the, the, our awareness at its root, innocent. Imagine, I invite you to imagine that you are an alert and sensitive child unencumbered by ideas or what you should be and what the world is. And perhaps you can bring an image of yourself as a child or a child you know into your heart. Sometimes the mind has lots of argument with these kinds of images or encouragements. Well, I'm not a child. I have a lot of responsibility. I live in the real world. Maybe you all can do that up at Great Vow, but I've got bills to pay. Or my mind is too anxious. There's no way I can just sit there, relax like that. Anxiety is anxious about not running the show. The part of us that wants to succeed and control through mental actions. Feel the fear, feel the uncertainty underneath that. I have a, a working theory that various thoughts of anxiety and, and worry and so forth are the smoke from a fire. And the fire is those feelings in the body, that energy in the nervous system of uncertainty, a, a tremor, a vibration that we don't tend to want to be in direct feeling relationship with. But there's still the smoke. So we hear the way the mind rejects various teachings like just let go, be at ease, open the heart-mind. We hear the way the mind rejects that and we can be curious about why it does and why those thoughts should have authority.
Kazan Zenji said, Zazen is also not based upon precepts, practice, or wisdom. These three are contained within it. So within this quality of, of openness, of un, uncontracting, not making a separate bubble of stillness kind of zazen, within that we anchor feeling the breath, the hands, the contact of the seat, whatever it may be. This zazen of our lineage is at least in my mind, more a spirit of practice than some prescription for method. We can be intimate with a koan with this spirit. We can listen to sounds with this spirit. The spirit of zazen, this quality of deep trust that we don't generate something else but what is most intimate to us is the practice and the fruit. Kazan Roshi, practice usually means unbroken concentration. Zazen is dropping the body-mind, leaving behind confusion and understanding. Unshakable, without activity, it is not deluded, but still, like an idiot, a fool, like a mountain, like the ocean, without any trace of motion or stillness. This practice is no practice because it has no object to practice, and so it is called great practice. I remember being at Sogenji Monastery for a little while and a daily exhortation from the Roshi was no gaps, no gaps. As soon as there's a gap, ego comes in. This, this powerful and compassionate exhortation, no gaps. And there was great fruit to that. It was a very enlivening practice. It was a practice that reclaimed my life from so many moments of distraction. So much wasted energy and poor me. I read about an old teacher giving the encouragement to a student that their mindfulness should be as if they were carrying a bowl of hot oil on their head throughout the day. that one should practice with this utmost carefulness, utmost alertness. If we do some work on the inner critic, we can practice in a different way. If we get some, some space, some detachment, from the perfectionist, we can approach practice in a different way. There's a big difference between self-improvement within spaciousness and self-improvement coming forth from a sense of one being inadequate. 
We can be motivated not by feeling like we're broken and we're going to get fixed if we nail the Buddhist technique, but rather that in spaciousness the best of ourselves can come out. There's room. As we do zazen, we thaw. We, we, we disadhere. We, we thin out the identification with the various arising elements of ourselves, and so there's room for creativity. There, there's room for habits to be appropriately re-angled, revisioned even. So a big mistake in hearing the Soto teaching is thinking that, well, whatever I do is the enlightened state, so I'll just do whatever I want to do. Or there's no place for wholehearted engagement because already everything is the self-enjoyful, playful samadhi. So let's go just eat ice cream sandwiches. Forget sashin. It's a big mistake. Kazan says, not to forget our deep nature and get distracted from our innate freedom. He says, it's like a mountain, like an ocean. And you find these, these images in all kinds of awareness lineages. You can take these images into your zazen. Invoke, I invite you to invoke or feel the quality of mountain. Maybe just close, close your eyes. And release the image of the shape of yourself. And feel the quality of mountain. solid how vast teeming with life yet stable And feel the quality of ocean. There's, there's something I think that happens when we grow up in different landscape environments. For example, I grew up and as a child I played a lot in the desert. So when I call up the sense of the desert sky or the vastness of the desert before it was developed, there's, there's a feeling I can fold into this practice. Perhaps you, you've been imprinted by the feeling of the ocean, the ocean's, the ocean's dharma. Feel that quality of ocean in yourself. And 
edgeless. A hugeness. Feeling the quality of moving and not moving simultaneous. Thoughts like waves. Body sensations like ripples. Kazan Zenji says, this practice is no practice because it has no object to practice and so is called great practice. That's a statement of great confidence in what our life is. It's a statement of lacking nothing. Of an inconceivable gift. And we get off our meditation seat and decisions get made and we go left and not right. We choose this or we choose that. Informed by this, in a sense, unbreakable beneficence, this this always wholeness, informed by this deep embrace of all beings. So Zazen, our lineage, inheritance, it's activated through trust in our deepest nature. What's what's the ambiance of trust within? What's the embodiment of trust? What's the embodiment of doubt? Devotion to this as the site of the Dharma's unveiling. Devotion to this as the site of the Dharma's unveiling. It's all we will ever have. So I take heart from all these these great teachers, not just Soto Zen teachers, not just Buddhist teachers, but so many whose lives and words tell us that we are not stuck or lacking, and that our deepest nature We have to put words to it as clear, open, bright, connected. Devotion to this, manifested in many ways, but particularly this time in Seshin, constancy of non-distraction, 
constancy of non-distraction, despite the fluctuating moods and assessments of how it's going. Something I've been sharing, which is a pattern I've observed in myself, is that sometimes the fruit of our diligent applied faith in just sitting in devotion to this means that a whole bunch of dust gets kicked up. We step into a dirty room and the air is filled with musty particles. And that's very good because now we can see those motes in the light. But if that happens and then we take that as evidence that it's not working or we're not doing a good job and then we turn the dial down in our devotion, there's a consequence of that. So fine-tuning fine your practice as, as we continue. Bring in the heart of loving-kindness and warm it up. It's not unusual to tilt into a too objective, too cool relationship to one's body, mind, and life. And then it's kind of a, a dry ice. It's, there's a juiciness that that gets missing, warm it up. Bring in compassion. Whatever I'm struggling with, how many countless other human beings have and will and are struggling with the same thing? And perhaps with less support with less resources to bear and to clarify it. Tap the nectar of bodhicitta to lift your spirits. Staying steady for all your loved ones, past, present, who didn't have the means or don't have the means to do this practice who don't have the circumstances that they would look into their own mind as a place of relief. All the loved ones, for whatever reason, who can't enjoy what you are able to enjoy. Staying steady for the vibrancy of the lineage. For better or worse, it's up to us. The practice of the present actualizes the virtue of the past. The practice of the future is going to be made possible by the devotion that we muster now. It's, it's one, one mala. One mala. And each of us is a powerful and singular and important and beautiful bead on this mala. So please do not doubt that, but really put your heart into this. Thank you. Mm -hmm.